most painful thing. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of What Most People Think. He's in the nervous 90s. Am I gonna am I gonna get to the hundred or am I gonna turn for that second run like Michael Afferton at Lords in what was it 1991? Slipped. No, that's far too early for a cricket reference. I'm gonna be losing uh, listeners here. Let's talk about something more general that people, everyone has skin in the game on. Is uh, is the heat. Here's the heat. And I will say that one of the great traditions of this country, as we talk about skin, is just working class blokes with just terrible physiques that feel that any sight of sunshine, they, you need to see their, their gut or their pigeon chest. I mean, in a way, the pigeon chest ones are the most incredible, aren't they? The pigeon chest ones, where it's almost like concave, where you think if they, if they, if they did backstroke with a small pool of water form... In the middle of their chest. Am I allowed to chest shame, guys? Look, this is what most people think. So we do not worry too much about offending, you know, people's sensitivities, body shaming, kink shaming. Apparently that's a thing now. If you're a dirty bastard, right? <laughs> Used to be you're a dirty bastard and people would mention it. Oh, you dirty bastard. Now, sorry, are you, sorry, are you kink shaming me? Yeah, I am. I am actually kink shaming you. If you, if you need to have like fucking, you know, small abrasions on your skin and lemon juice poured into it, I think you need to see a counsellor, okay? <laughs> so, yes, I am kink-shaming you. Uh, by the way, that, that lemon juice paper cut thing, I, I, I don't know anybody specifically like that. Um, but no, it's showbiz. There's probably someone that does that. Uh, the big news, obviously, this week is the governments um, have said that we might need uh, vaccine passports to get into nightclubs. And, you know, on the day that the freedom... Uh, so that when all the restrictions were lifted, right, in heavy inverted commas there, all the restrictions were lifted Monday. Wink, wink. Half the fucking nation getting pinged. The United Pingdom. Mm. We said this before, that some of the puns around COVID are just not good. Free dumb day. Yeah, more like free dumb day. Free... Yeah, mate, look, it's just not as good a joke as you think it is. That's why no one is responding to you. Um, but yeah, and it, so people are saying, well, why the hell are these people protesting? Guys, you've got your freedom. And then on the same day, the government say that there might be vaccine passports. And then they go, well, look, it's just for nightclubs. You know, nightclubs are small, enclosed spaces. Why is everybody freaking out? Why is everyone freaking out? And then later, it's, well, it might be for pubs. You know, it might just be a fucking general thing. And then the Labour Party were dangerously close to uh, having a position. Having owned the ventilation argument, they're very close to actually defending young people and saying, you know, this is a bit too much for a generation that have already sacrificed a lot for something that, broadly speaking, uh, isn't massively impactful on them. But no, they sort of backtracked a little bit and just got back on that fucking fence of theirs. I mean, look, I know there's plenty of criticised the Tories about this week, but... Every week, you know, the Tories do something dumb and then every week there's a poll that comes out and the Tories are still ahead or have increased their lead or aren't, or aren't, you know, the lead hasn't narrowed to a degree that people think is logical. And just remember, every single time, the Labour didn't have a position on Brexit and they haven't had a position on Covid. At this point, there could be an asteroid hurtling towards the Earth and the Labour Party would wait to see what the Tories did and then just pick a position that was like, well, well I, th I think we need to fire a nuclear weapon at it like a minute sooner. You know, that's the, that's the general way of Labour doing things at the moment. Uh, I have had a good week filming stuff. Uh, I will be making, I think I'm allowed to say this, podcast exclusive, my League of Their Own debut this autumn on the panel show. So that was pretty exciting. And it was, uh, I did the game at the end and I was all dressed up for it. And look, suffice to say, I've now seen my flank in slow motion. 
You know, I've watched a slow motion replay of me doing a physical challenge. And look, I'm not saying like I'm super massive as a bloke, but it's kind of sobering, isn't it? It's like what you look like on a TV camera is a bit like when you go to check your bank balance. It's just a bit worse than the worst case scenario you thought. You know, when you go to check your bank balance and you go, yeah, yeah, maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm sort of 700 quid overdrawn. Two grand! Two grand. Uh, I'm also filming for Dave today, the channel, Comedians Giving Lectures. I'm, I'm quite looking forward to this. Looking down the list, I mean, it's quite a wokey kind of bunch of comics and it could be a very woke crowd. So I'll let you know how that goes. Look, if, if I don't mention it, and then presume it was an absolute shit show. Uh, no cuss count this week. David Domain, if you can hear us, maybe you've been pinged. Maybe you're not allowed to do cuss count by the government because, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, but that might translate. Maybe you just looked at the cuss count and thought, ah, fuck it. Uh, that'd be funny, really. just go, yeah, 99. Oh my God, I thought maybe it'd be me that was out on 99. Maybe David Domain at the other end, my batting partner, has just uh, has just hit out. But um, hopefully that'll be uh, back on track next week. A new Patreons. We've got quite a few this week, so I'll do them in each section. Uh, we've got Richard Armstrong. That is a strong name. Dickie Armstrong. Dickie. I mean, you could work as Dickie Armstrong. I think you've got to be 50 before that name works. Rich Armstrong. Richard Armstrong. It looks like you wrote a medical paper on, like, butterflies. Uh, Cookie. Did I mention his names last week? Cookie. Hey, Cookie. Is it is it because your surname is Cook or is it because you're a heroin addict? Yeah, he's always cooking up. We call him Cookie. <laughs> Me and the other lads. Well, they're less of the lads they were. That's heroin for you. Um, Ryan Jones. Ryan Jones has to be an Australian name there. Ryan Jones there. And the ball was snapped to Ryan Jones there. Who drop kicks. That's three points for Australia. It does sound like a... Right, uh, sort of Australian rugby union player, Arthur Hooper. I mean, it was Carl Hooper. Maybe you're the son of Carl Hooper, the uh, West Indies batsman and off spinner there. And we got Stephen Kilpatrick. Um, now, probably old, but this will be culturally insensitive. But you know, they say that surnames like blacksmith, goldsmith, are, are you know born of what you did. Did your family kill a guy called Patrick? Is that what happened? The Kilpatricks. Yeah, sure, the Kilpatricks there from County Fermanagh. The uh, a long time ago, there was a dispute over some... I've never done this accent before, I don't think. I'm, this is a very middle-class Dublin accent, I think. You know, people don't think that uh, Irish people could be middle-class, but uh, that, that way that they say class would give you... Yeah, a lot of people, I think in Scotland, uh, Wales and Ireland, get away with being middle-class. I mean, not that you have to get away with it. Look, clearly I've got a chip on my shoulder. Oh, can I just say something as well? Like, I, I'm increasingly getting people saying to me, oh, yeah, you talk about working-class stuff. <laughs> you live in Cambridgeshire. Like, yeah, dickhead. You only know that because I fucking told you. I talk about it. I'm aware of the ironies of my own existence. It's not quite the scoop you think it is. Um, guests this week my god this week and next week so next week is the 100th episode we've got a supreme guest for you and no different this week we've got the fantastic Alan Cochran Alan is so smart a lot of you have asked uh, for him to be on the show he's so smart that he's not on Twitter that's how fucking shrewd this man is and from when I started comedy, you know, Alan's been a guy that has done uh, the club game, was a bulletproof act in the club game, the jonglers, the comedy store, all that sort of stuff. Also at festivals, also on Radio 4. You know what? It's that old-fashioned thing of, uh, he's just very funny. He's a very good comedian. And um, Alan has increasingly become seen in some quarters, I guess, as on the, not fully on the dark side of the force with the right-wing comics, but uh, un you know, unafraid to say exactly what he thinks 
on issues, even if it runs against uh, comedians, sort of uh, comic orthodoxies, really, of uh, the general sweep of left-wing opinion. Uh, this week, the thank you and the fuck you is from Richard, who sent me a letter. Richard Colwell, is it, I think? Uh, so I'm gonna, I'll am i let him do the thank you and the fuck you this week, because I think they're both relevant. The thank you is that he bought four tickets for the April the 7th show at MK Stables. This is for the tour I Blame the Parents. Um, so he got in contact with the box office and they yeah, said, yeah, your tickets are valid for the autumn day. Of course they are, the rescheduled dates. So if you had tickets for even going back as far as early, what was it, early 2020, make sure that you uh, find out from the venue. Because the weird thing for me would be thinking, oh, this one's sold out and turn up, there's no fucker there. Um, so do, do what Richard does, be like Richard. And then I'm interested in his fuck you because I saw this morning a tweet from a, co- a comedian colleague of mine who I respect a lot as a comic, but their inference was was that they weren't proud of any, pretty much anything English. I bet you any money if you'd asked them about British, they'd have said they were proud because that's something that, you know, the liberal left could more get on board with. Uh, but yeah, it couldn't think of anything other than like the England football team. I mean, th- that is the thing if you're on the liberal left now. What are you proud of about being English? Sacco, Sancho, Rashford. You know, I'm proud of that. I'm pretty, they just, it's sort of like their, their kind of modus operandi. You know, they talk about British exceptionalism or English exceptionalism. Uh, sorry, that's the David Price there who picked me up quite correctly of uh, confusing the two. But what they don't realise is they're guilty of uh, English unexceptionalism, where the sort of overriding presumption that anything in England is a bit crap, right? So this is Richard's list. Uh, the only country to have won the Rugby, Football and Cricket World Cups, didn't even know that. Uh, created a dot-com and financial crisis bubble off the back of Top Trump's Rally Grifters, Mousetrap, Mastermind and Tracy Island. Okay, feel like we bounced a bit around on that one, but I think I know where you're coming from. Has broadcasters of the quality of Ian Dale and Matt Ford for free on our airways. Yeah, there's a great standard of uh, podcasts out there. <laughs> uh, bought us Fatty Owls, Morse, Afterlife and Carry On Cleo. A real sweep of programmes there, but I'm with you. Uh, we are a nation of animal lovers, although strangely not vegans, but maybe it's because corn tastes so shit. Uh, we are, without question, this is another point from Richard, the most mo- tolerant multicultural country in the world. Uh, what is it? 200 plus languages spoken every day in London with minimal aggro. Uh, he says, I'm 57 and what, we've had two to three weekends of proper writing. Yeah, I guess you're 57, you've seen most, most things. And I think that that has always been the argument here, isn't it? It's not perfect, but it's all right and we can do better. That's a reasonable stance, but far too many people on the left don't take that. Uh, this country brought us Stephen Hawkins, Kate Bush, Charles Dickens, Jeff Lynne, Paul Gascoigne, Ronnie O'Sullivan, and Mr. Ben. I don't know, Mr. Ben. Uh, I know Tony Ben, Nigel Ben. Maybe you meant that. <laughs> it's one of the few people I can do an impression of in sport. It's a Nigel Ben. Do you remember when Nigel used to talk? He used to have a little bit of a lisp. This geezer came here to box me. I've put him down in two rounds. Fuck him. Uh, we had Desert Island Discs for over 60 years. Uh, this country offers us Keemanan, Heston Blumenthal and Punk IPA. I'm, I'm not with you on those beers, but I, I, look, if it's important to you, we have some great beers here. We have some great beers. We've always done... Like this country, we're smart enough to know what of, our, what of our stuff is good and what stuff to nick from other countries. And this is finally... Thank you very much. This, this is the country that brought us Jeff Norcott and the grass shoots, the slight quivering of an anti-wokery movement at last. Okay, let's crack on and speak to this week's brilliant guest, the one and only Alan Cochran. (laughs) 
Okay, welcome, making his debut on what most people think is Alan Cochran. Hiya. So first up, I've got to say, you're not on Twitter, and this makes you so shrewd to me, so mysterious and shrewd. When did you, were you ever on Twitter? No, um, but I do think you have to say, you have to pay a certain tax in paranoia, which is that you just basically have to assume that people on Twitter are calling you names because you're not on there and you're not finding it out. But worse than that would be being on there and knowing for certain that people are on Twitter calling you names and they're calling it to you. So I, I just, it was obviously not for me. Yeah. But one of the things that, I think people are surprised when they scratch the surface of my personality, Jeff, is that I I struggle with joining in much, much more than people would expect of right. me. Like I I am not very easily bossed around or shepherded into stuff. Um, and Twitter was exactly one of those things where I thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, I'm definitely not. Well, I mean, that is such a nice segue into, into where you're coming from comedically, because I listened to your your Radio 4 special centrist dad, which is absolutely brilliant. I know for a fact everyone that listens to this podcast will love it because it goes into some interesting areas. I would say, firstly, what it's funny, like because you come from a proper stand up grounding, you're 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 quite evidently mindful of getting punchlines in. And is, yeah. is that something that's very important to you doing stuff like that? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And and actually, um, uh, the producer seemed to think that I was from a different era of comedian where if you were making a political point, it sort of had to have a punchline rather than just be a point like a, oh, yeah. And, and so that, that does matter to me um, to the point where actually I, I feel slightly cringy thinking of it as political comedy at all, but you know, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, I wanted it to be funny. And I ever since doing stand-up, I've always enjoyed the the sort of enormity of the canvas of what you can do stand-up comedy about. I've always loved the fact that you can do stuff about kids or like global politics or, you know, to pick an example from the show, like the stickers on apples. Like I love the fact that it can be microscopic and massive. Hmm. Um as long as it's funny, it gets in. So I never really had like a, a rule of what I would or wouldn't talk about as long as I thought it was funny. Um, but then I suppose within that, there's some positive constraints. Like I, over the years, I tried not to do certain things. Like there's certain jokes that I just, I'm not really drawn towards, mainly if they're too obvious for me. Like I mentioned in the show that it, it gives me the cringes how many people do lame jokes about how many kids Boris Johnson's got and you've done the news quiz as well and it's literally every week and I just think oh really again well I suppose the point the point about it satirically is it ceases to have any power or energy because what it becomes is the first time it's done it's like well yeah that's a fair point it's probably not brilliant that he hasn't been a fantastic father but it's almost like this kind of Pavlovian thing where it almost gets a cheer you know, like, on a, on, like yeah. on a panel show, like something like League of Their Own, when they showed a picture of uh, Freddie Flintoff as a massive baby. Right. Like, it's no longer about Freddie Flintoff. It's like there's that thing that we know. And uh-huh. When you say, like, he might not be great as a father, I don't I don't necessarily think that having lots of kids means you're necessarily yeah. bad as a father. Like, it's just, 
it just feels really sort of condescending and judgmental to me. But then again, I actually think um, a huge amount of Radio Four's comedy does. <laughs> I think I think loads of it has got this kind of oh, we know the answers, and here are the jokes that assume that we know the answers and that everyone else is wrong. It's got this. Um, have you ever read any Thomas Sowell? Um, no. He, he wrote a book called The Vision of the Anointed, um, and it, it really made me think of the comedy circuit when I read it. It's just all these people that say, we know what's going on, and yeah. you can't test it because we know it. Like it's, it's... Well, it's interesting you mention that, because like I think that that is a big part of Twitter, which is sort of trying to remind you, you're not allowed to like this person because, or um, you're not allowed to, allowed to be aligned with this point of view because. Um, and it's interesting, because I would have presumed that you weren't on Twitter because of because of that you know because of the group think and stuff like that rather than the kind of kind of paranoia about what people say or being contactable but i think that i think that whether or not that's the reason i think you would despise it like yeah like, i mean it, it, it sort of typifies exactly what you're saying well i do look at it um so i actually get the worst bit of twitter i look at the, right, yeah. the sort of cesspool of um arguing and I bring my existential gloom up to about my forehead level, and then I log off, but I'm not getting any of the benefits of profile. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I mean, it's probably, you're right, it's probably the worst way to have it is to kind of like, is to is to lurk on it. And I do think that the period of lockdowns and restrictions seem to have polarised it even further, if, if that were possible, is that we've all kind of hunkered down in identities and I, I, one thing I, I don't know I don't think is I just don't think that the left and I know it's a massive concept but seem to learn so every time there's an election the right win the left have this brief it, it briefer and briefer period of introspection where we're going we've got yeah. to do something differently if we want power and it happened again in the recent local elections and then they've just sort of gone back to thinking no we'll win the election by continually highlighting that this person's awful vile or ghastly all these weird victorian words that they now use on, <laughs> on twitter whereas most people's political uh, uh priorities aren't that are they it's about simple things economy yeah. just knowing what the fucker party stands for it's really hard because some of the people that are really tribal and and sort of steeped in the labor ideal mm. off the circuit and you know within kind of social friendships of mine they, they kind of can't be told. Like I've, I sent a, a, a couple of articles by um, Paul Embury. You know Paul Embury. Yes, the, yeah, he's been on the show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. like I sent a couple of articles by him because I thought, wow, he's re he really sees it. Hmm. I think he really sees that thing that he says about um, Labour used to be a coalition between Hartlepool and Hampstead but now it's gone too much Hampstead and not enough Hartlepool. Yeah. I just thought that absolutely sounds so true to me. That like That's a proper bullseye. Um, and I sent it to somebody that needed to hear it, and they just hated it. They just hated it. Like, yeah. they just said, no, I don't, I'm, I'm not having it. Well, is, is that that there's like a moral narcissism where we our mistake is to think, oh, this group of people, what they must want is political power because what they want to they talk about is wanting to change society. Whereas social media, 
does have quite a bit of power. Maybe massive. They're ha- well, maybe they're happier than they admit with the status quo as it is, because what they can do is rather than have the pressure of stress testing their ideological certainties, they can run around, you know, cancelling people, uh, restricting people, besmirching people, and without having to ever sort of test their theories. And it's almost like the longer the left stay out of power, the easier it is to have hypothetical certainty, because they've never actually been proved to be factually wrong about anything politically. Which is fine, but when... When people point out, okay, but what you're doing is student union politics forever, they have to say, yeah, that's exactly it. We're no longer a political party. We're, yeah. we're sort of a, a load of six formers that give a shit about Palestine. Um, yeah, we're a pressure and, group, and, essentially. And we're an ongoing yeah, pressure yeah. group. Yeah. And I think the thing that I admire about um, quite a lot of the Tories and, and to to give credit to some of the sensible ones in Labour is that they don't they don't want a one-party state. They want there to be a decent opposition. Um, but there haven't been that many um, good opposition voices during the lockdown or anything. I saw David Blunkett do one of the unheard interviews and I was pleased with how he was uh, criticising the lockdown and sort of the uh, attacks on liberty. But... I can't think of any um, Labour politicians that have said anything interesting in the last year and a half. No, to the I mean, point where I, I saw recently, maybe a month or two ago, Theresa May doing a speech about COVID. And I thought, this is the opposition. Theresa know, May is the opposition. When, when, when Theresa May is getting the fire emojis, you know something's not <laughs> weird, doesn't but it? Like she's a former leader. I know. And the, the most conservative of conservatives. Like she's not an extremist. And, no. and she was basically saying this lockdown, you know, we, we, we have to live with COVID. We're never going to get rid of it. And that, you know, why that hasn't been said by a Labour Party politician well, I think that Ed Davey, Ed Davey briefly flirted with being liberal again, and that was kind of interesting, but that seems to have gone away and they've drifted more back to the Leila Moran <clears> view of liberalism, which is you've got to be free from things, which I, I just don't simply right. think is what liberalism is at all. And then the incredible thing about um, Labour is how they none of their front bench have managed to cut through at all. I mean, you look at the, the shadow health guy, Jonathan Ashworth, I mean, like I have to, I you know, I have to struggle to remember his name. I wonder how many people. <laughs> if you can't get cut through as the fucking shadow health secretary in a COVID crisis, I, I don't think yeah. it's going to happen. I, I, yeah. I think it might be time to think about someone else. They had, um, again, I've forgotten her name again. Annalise Dodds was the shadow chancellor, completely insipid. And it, yeah. and you talk about the sensible people in the Labour Party. I said this to Owen Jones recently. It's really obvious, like the front bench that they could have, which would be like. Someone like Burnham, Hillary Benn, Yvette Cooper, maybe Elisa Nandy, Jess Phillips. Now, I understand that that is to the, a lot of lefties centre right, but are you, you telling me that the British public wouldn't buy into that? You know, this strong. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. So what? So is it just that, like you say, yeah, maybe that's the thing is they just have to admit and go, no, this is this is too much fun. Just. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't look like fun or feel like it from where I am, but no. No, it has been it has been odd that, that what you talk about, which is what Theresa May said, it, it seems to be it should have been a mainstream position. 
question in yeah. lockdown, shouldn't it? And yet it hasn't. And is that because there is a very simplistic idea at the moment between what it means to be a good person? So every argument seems to come down to, well, you either think this or you don't care about people. Yes. Um, and and I really early on thought, this is strange. Mm. Um, I remember questioning lockdown. I mean, I went into the first lockdown fairly um, willingly, yeah, I thought I thought it was probably an overreaction. Like I remember saying to someone, oh, "It feels a bit like we might be cutting off our um, uh, head to cure a toeic or something." Yeah, um, and and but we didn't know that that much about the you know how how deadly it was and how it spread and all that stuff. But as soon as we started getting more and more information, it seemed like oh well, eventually we need to open this up because this these interventions aren't making a difference to the spread of it and they won't uh but then i noticed that if you question lockdown people immediately said oh well you must want grannies to die mm. <laughs> and, and i thought well hang on if you question like the the speed limit nobody turns mm. around and says well you want more motorway pileups <laughs> don't do that like that's not how we like yeah. deal with conversations about laws. What? So I, I never really understood why people get so emotional about it. But I have that anyway. Like I, I think I have a kind of a slightly Doctor Spock vibe about emotion in argument. And so maybe I am a natural 1922 committee Tory deep down. Like <laughs> it was. Never- I mean, I'm not. I'm a centrist, but <laughs> well, I mean, they never wanted, they never cared about whether or not Granddad died. Which, if you wanted to show how, oh, that's ident- a good point. <laughs> how identity politics is is so kind of comprehensive is that even in that, like, even in that <laughs> point, people were making it was never sort of like they never countenance the idea that old men mattered because they they just think well old men they'd probably pinch some secretary's ass in the 60s they deserve to die eventually yeah. <laughs> but granny granny you know if anything i'd say as women get older they become way more crabby and as men lose testosterone they're, they're a little bit more likable <laughs> <laughs> um you in 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 the show what i thought was really interesting was that was trying to work out because I saw you at the Edinburgh Fringe a couple of years ago and you'd finished the show and you seemed so invigorated by the style of comedy that you were doing. But one thing I wondered with yourself was whether it's a case of you've maintained your usual level of honesty um, and everyone else has changed or you've sort of felt like you've been dragged into certain debates because it's wound you up so much that you sort of wanted to put your side of an argument. Right. Yeah, it's probably a bit of both, truthfully. I think I think quite a big thing for me um, in terms of um, adjusting the stuff that I've talked about over the years was I I did get a bit more interested in atheism in maybe the last five six something like that years and 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 I think listening to some of those podcasts then made me think a bit more about identity politics and. Yeah. So it started with discussing religious privilege, really. And then I realised that people were very uncomfortable about that. Um, and now I, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more benevolent on um, the religious privilege conversation. I think I've mellowed somewhat on it. But but basically, I 
I have problems with double standards and mm. and I've always had a slightly contrarian streak. And some people have sort of said to me, oh, this has come from nowhere, and it hasn't. Like, there's always been a little bit... I remember maybe even like 15, 20 years ago doing a gig with Russell Howard and him saying to me, oh, you do show your teeth, don't you? Like, and I think he meant that, like, I have got the ability to sort of growl at them a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah. it's not all, like mr agreeable like there is a bit of me that is prepared to swim against the tide um and and i think i think maybe just that as you get older and and start talking about stuff that people care about a bit more um it it might be that it could just be that like when i first started looking back on it some of my stuff was really shallow like i was doing lots of you know food observation and anecdotes and like um a lot of it was very lightweight and what I would consider to be quite wishy-washy standard by by the standard of today. We were um, doing a, a club, you know, a club circuit where, you know, survival and being, you know, like sort of having at least an eight and a half out of 10 gig was kind of what you were looking for every time on stage. That felt like the kind of um, benchmark. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that stuff because I obviously went on a similar thing. You know, people sort of like they, uh, there were accusations of disingenuity about what I was talking about, you know. I started talking about politics in about 2013, but no one really gave a shit till about 2016. So what it seemed right. like was Brexit happened, I'd suddenly gone, hey, hey. Right. I'd just, I'd just been quite bad at it for three years. But it, like yourself, I remember some routines whereby, you know, I did a routine about Monopoly, which was sort of in favour of the establishment in a way, like a sort of, sort of right. fun, funny to kind of go, well, yeah, of course porn should die first, you know. And, and, you know, even going back further than that, there was a routine I did about George Bush where I was going, well, he's probably not that stupid. <laughs> right. You know, because again, it was sort of similar to Twitter, whereby we, were, we had, a comp, we had a, a, an idea of a politician that was based on his worst moment. All right. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Alan there. We just got to say hello to a few more patrons before I hype a couple of things. Uh, Andy... Clutton, Andy Clutton, you just sound like a character in a David Williams kids book. Angela Mears, that just sounds like Angela Mears, like like a really upmarket flooring company. Hello, Angela Mears. Yeah, I had my flooring guy booked to come round last week and he didn't come. And then when he did, he was charlied off his nut. I'm ever so sorry. We have stopped working with that contractor now. Uh, James H. James H. Is that another one of those 90s DJ names? James H in the house. James H. Or were you at primary school and there were like loads of fucking Jameses in your class? Do you remember that when you have like a rash of certain, <laughs> certainly in the 80s when there were less first names than there were? Let's be honest. Now you've got fucking Ariella, Space Jam. As a, that's not a name. I couldn't think of a weird name. But you were like James H. There were like four Jameses in your class. Welcome to the Patreon. And of course the Patreon. We did a, we did a Patreon only episode this week. So if you want to listen to that. Uh, we mainly on the Patreon onlys. Uh, the patrons get to ask me the questions and I answer them, and it's become more of an established way of doing it. And I love it, man, because people ask great questions. We cover a lot of subjects. So if you become a patron, you get access to that. You get access to my last stand-up special, Taking Liberties, other stand-up content that's all still up there, and of course, let's be honest. The main thing is we keep this podcast weekly and ad-free. I'll be honest, this one's another one of those weeks. Where if it wasn't monetized, old Jeff might have been, uh, well, I might have been cracking one out with the curtains closed. <laughs> oh, come on, man. You know what I'm talking about. That sad day when you sit there, you got the house to yourself. You think, what could I do? Could I improve myself as a human being? Could uh, 
I start learning another language. Uh, I'll tell you what I could do. Curtains, it's not good. It's not pretty. Um, the tour, I Blame the Parents, is coming to lots of places and ticket sales. I mean, it's almost like since the last restriction went down, you lot have been digging in your pockets. Uh, the Edinburgh date, there's only one Edinburgh date, Saturday 21st of August. That sold out really quickly, and we're trying to uh, add capacity there. And I'm sure, you know, Nicola's very easygoing about covid you know, I'm sure I'm just gonna write a little email. I'm sure she'll respond very well to someone who's not only English but a conservative. Hey Nicola, any chance you could uh, chill the fuck out and increase capacity, and maybe create some revenue from your city to fund your expansive pseudo-socialist agenda? <laughs> uh, we're going all sorts of places. We're going Boston, Barnstable, Northampton, all those places. The book is still out uh, in hardback. I think there might be still one or two signed copies if you order direct through Waterstones, uh, through Amazon, on Audible. You know, you get your credits. I mean, it's done way better as an audiobook that any of us than any of us sort of uh, legislated for. So if you have already read the book, you could just use your Audible credit. You could sign up. I think it look, I think it's one of those things where it says, oh, for free, but you know, you just got you got to remember to fucking cancel it if you don't want the service uh, anymore. But give it a go. I mean it's just it's just a lazy way of reading books, isn't it? You know what I mean? You're reading books. You could read the book, you could listen to the book, or you could, you know, shut the curtains. You know, in, in the special, there was one bit that I loved in particular that you did was about Brexit. You know, you voted Remain. But yeah. you, you said, and I hope you don't mind me sort of, well, look, I, mean, I don't want to quote the joke, but you keep it very simple about how you dealt with it. <laughs> I, well, this is one of those, I mean, you must have had this yourself. Yeah. This is one of those lines that I never wrote as a joke. I just said it out loud yeah. and people started laughing. Um, but it is true, like... Uh, you know, I did vote Remain, and um, and it didn't go my way. And after about a day, I started coping. Is that is that the bit you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I remember talking to people about it and saying, "Well, obviously we've got to start coping, haven't we?" Like, you know, yeah. it's going to happen. I, the bit that was most monstrous to me wasn't so much the the way the vote went, was the 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 constant elite interference and attempt to derail it yeah and and i just couldn't understand people that had also voted remain like me not not seeing the danger in ripping mm. up the sort of fabric of democracy <laughs> like I, I just i thought can you not see that this is this yeah. isn't just like throwing the sat nav out the window. This is like plowing up the road so that yeah. nobody can use it ever again. <laughs> this, like, um, yeah, and and some people seem to think that that would happen without consequence rather than um, with years of horrible consequence. Yeah, I mean that was what I think a lot of kind of middle ground Brexiteers like myself, even Brexiteer was. I found a weird word for what I was. I was someone who voted leave. You know, I was asked a question came down it wasn't something i thought about that deeply but i think it was a reasonable question to give the british public at some point after membership uh -huh. of the eu i felt it couldn't be swerved forever but that yeah that that kind of five-year hissy fit from some people was I, I, it radicalized me beyond my normal instincts and now i think i'm a lot more conciliatory but i think it drew a mm -hmm. lot of us out of our normal char characters and it sounds like with yourself it did that to you but in an interesting way whereby you'd voted remain but a sort of Sounded like you're a bit horrified at, at, at the the reaction of the losing team. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and also, I I found the um, the leap to to decide 
that a huge number of those votes were racist. Uh, mm. Horrible. I found that a horrible, horrible assumption. And actually, I found it weirdly um, condescending to the working classes. I felt like a lot of very um, well-educated, well-brought-up in posh areas people were basically saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it's mm. the working classes of Darlington or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're racists. That's why they've done this. And I've spoken to a fair number of Brexiteers in the last five years, <clears throat> and it just so happened that on the night that there was the um, uh, Brexit freedom thing in London, it was in yeah. January, wasn't it? That, um, yes, yeah. I was doing a couple of gigs in London that night and ended up in in the crowd in between gig one and gig two. Yeah. And this this idea that the Brexit vote was all white men, whatever just on snow said on the radio um, yeah, on, never seen um, so many white people in one place yeah horrible um and and I, I was walking through that and it was a really mixed crowd there's mm. absolutely no way that um and and yet you you get comics saying that they can't understand people of color voting brexit and all that stuff like it's i find i find um the breeziness with which people think that uh people should conform to a certain voting pattern because of the skin pigmentation really turns my stomach. What most people think. In the, in the Radio 4 special there, you mentioned uh, our colleagues uh, a couple of times and you mentioned them in the, the special itself. Do you feel sort of like a bit let down by the way that the industry's gone, sort of certainly in terms of small P political comedy? Or do you feel like you've been left standing in a reasonable place and a lot of people have gone somewhere else? Yes. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I'll tell you what it is. I don't remember when comedy became so hectoring. Mm. And and that's really disappointed me. Like, I, I kind of I actually don't really care if somebody's politics are different to mine, if they're doing stand up about it. And it's hilarious. Like I watch quite a lot of comedy that I disagree with the 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 viewpoint yeah. but like the jokes but there seems to be a kind of a a shrillness that that is without jokes that i just i it's i don't i don't even think the bbc fully know how disliked their comedy output is like i got an email when the show went out on sunday night from someone saying uh, <laughs> i just heard your radio for show and i thought oh here we go another uh arsehole lefty comic <laughs> like yeah um, but lo and behold i laughed all the way through it and really enjoyed it i'm surprised the bbc let you on i am um, do you find something that i find is where you know people like us who are willing to talk in a certain way i mean one thing is a touch isn't it where you can talk about what you know are fairly mainstream opinions and then you get feedback for your show where people say how refreshing Oh, this was edgy, and you go, it's, it's, it's yeah. the opposite of edgy. It's, it, I don't, in a way, I would like the tone of public debate to change, but comedically, it's a fucking gift where you can adopt mainstream views <laughs> and get credit for being an edgelord. But 
Um, one thing I do think would be useful if it changed is, is, is you probably get this. A lot of left-wing people will sort of confide in you and go, well, do you know what? I don't actually understand that or I don't know why that word exists or I, I'm not sure about self-identification at the age of fucking seven or whatever. And then and you sort of think, well, it'd be great if you right. said this publicly too and it made it, you know, gave an accurate account Um of, of what the general public view is because I've, I've never I've, I've never known a bigger divide between what people say in private and what they say in public I am um, I worked with a comic maybe a year or two ago who told me that he was secretly reading Jordan Peterson's book <laughs> 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 he couldn't tell other comics like I mean I just think this is preposterous yeah this this uh, and quite a lot of the of the Radio Four show discusses the idea of book banning and and hmm. freedom to read and choose what you think about what you read. Um, but I just, I mean, I'm no massive Jordan Peterson fan. I think some of it's interesting. Hmm. I think it's, I've got no skin in the game for Jordan Peterson, but I don't view him as an existential threat, and I certainly don't think that uh you know reading him would sever my friendships with people or at least none of the people that i care about properly Mm. um but if that's the level that we're at where people that are on the comedy circuit are secretly reading jordan peterson's 12 (laughs) rules for life i think i think those people need to speak up and say oh i'm reading this book and i don't care i'm i'm gonna tell you about it um, yeah, I mean, well, he, in a way, is he not like a little bit like us comedically where he's benefited from saying things that are just so widely accepted about, yeah, it's quite good for young men to take responsibility for themselves. Totally. I have a theory, actually, that um, one of the reasons that he is sort of an anathema to to some of the more kind of um, drippy left of the circuit is that there is this message of personal responsibility, which they're completely allergic to because they're deep down. I think they're big state. They want a nanny state. They want literally every social problem to be dealt with by government rather than an individual. And so I think he's like their kryptonite because he's saying, no, you can do some things for yourself and you should. Um, And so I think that might be why he vexes them so much. Well, yeah, I mean, I, personal responsibility you know it's been spoken about recently the government have tried a couple of times and and the reaction to the concept in a way was the most alarming thing for me because it just showed how much its stock has fallen where where you had mainstream broadcasters like you know because you see on gmb you see someone like Susanna reed and she realizes that she has to adopt she's speaking to some doctor or something who's inevitably pro lockdown she's like so hey what about this Personal responsibility. Think, come, come on, that's something we could do as a society. <laughs> personal responsibility. Like, it's not, it's not a fucking brand new concept. It's like, it's something no. people understand on on a personal level. That's what, what that's what I find odd is within families, people will go, yeah. Sometimes you have to tell people to sort yourself up. You know, give people a kick up the ass. A mixture between tough yeah. love and nurture. And yet, the moment you try and apply that in a macro sense, people get very, very uneasy. I just wonder if you know. I, I really love the word liberal. I I I am a liberal, but I just yeah. wonder if if is it one of those words that's just changed? Because quite frequently, the people that call themselves liberal now they want to restrict, censor, legislate, tax. They're all the opposite of liberal. Is yeah. 
Do we do? Do me and you just accept? Will that word just mean something different now, or do they need to get their own word? I think they need to get their own word because I think um, I think liberalism in in sort of the old sense needs to come back. I think it needs to. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it needs like a a, a rebrand. <laughs> An actual liberal party would be would help. I mean, one of the things on Twitter is that it became you know like people will say, "Oh, he's one of these free speech warriors," and you go, "That doesn't sound bad." <laughs> yeah, well, it only it only sounds bad to them. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's 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 very revealing. It's like one of those cell phones where, like, if 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 you're sneering about free speech warriors. Your anti-free speech, which tells me so much about you. And classical liberal was the other one that started to get mocked as well. You know, do, uh, yeah, I don't this really... country has been largely founded upon and done very well from. I was one of yeah. these classical liberal free speech warriors. Go, I'd like to meet that guy. Do you know what? I'd rather be with that guy right now than you. <laughs> well, I think classical liberal is sort of um, one of those positions that people like me and and I think there are a lot of people like me that used to think of themselves as somewhere on the left or centre left or just, you know, unthinkingly a bit left wing. Like I didn't yeah. pay it that much attention, but I was pretty lefty. Like I've never I've still never voted for a right wing party. Um, but eventually, sort of as as the sort of steamroller of time has gone on, I've realised, hang on, I'm I'm arguing with left-wing people more and more hmm. um and i think i think if you pay any attention to that eventually i think the little classical liberal starts to pop up in conversations and you think oh am i one of those um and so i wonder if that's why that is becoming a, a term that is getting pilloried because they realise that's the next home for people that used well, to be on the well, left. Maybe then, I think maybe we've arrived at something meaningful here, is classical liberal is, is the new party. But the great thing is it's got such a classy name that the membership, you could charge like ton, ton <laughs> 50 for that. Listen, I would love to, I'd love to do a couple. I normally do letters myself, but I'd love to hear your wisdom on it. Just a couple of quandaries that the, the listeners have got, just taking it away. Well, sort of political here. Um, we got a letter from Gareth in Dudley. And he says, um, "My, I mean, I'm not going to do the accent, but I think if you think of this in a Brummy accent, it does make sense as to how he writes. Okay. My daughter has come back from school, a leftist uh, school. I think he probably means university, uh, a leftist feminist. I kind of knew oh. this would happen, but what can I do to help her during this time? If I'm too <laughs> anti, she'll rebel harder. If I try and reason, she'll think I'm a lame centrist dad. And I... If and so I think this is just a scam, probably. And if and if I agree, she'll probably think she's not radical enough, which is a fair point, right? The worst yeah. thing that Gareth could do and go, babe, so on board, so so. She went, oh. <laughs> so um, I'm his daughter's eighteen. This sounds like the first year at university is finished. She's been locked down with militants until <laughs> I get the CIA in and put her through decompression. And oh, I mean. I I'm worried about this exact thing anyway, uh, not just for a daughter, for a son, for everyone, um, because the uh, untrammeled politicization of education is is eye watering. Yeah, um, some of the stuff that they come back from school having been set, it's amazing, amazingly partisan. Uh, 
I don't know. I think he's probably got the right idea of um, don't stamp down on it too much because you'll uh, you'll just create like a, a sort of lefty feminist on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it? Is it? I mean, is it not giving a shit? Maybe because that's the one thing that he that he hasn't really mentioned. You know, he saw everything he's mentioned here is interventionist in one way or another. So he's sort of saying, oh, if I agree, but you don't actually have to agree either. You can be yeah. completely unfussed by the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I would love that. That's I, I still have that little bit of um, argumentativeness where I, I can't help but go, well, are you sure that's exactly what you want to think? <laughs> yeah. But but to be able to just let it wash over you, I mean, that would be a real dad move, actually, to just be behind the paper, let it wash over and then say, oh, yeah, we'll talk about it in a decade, see if you've got it out of your system. A little raised eyebrow over the top, yeah, of, the, exactly. over the, top of the telegraph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that when I was young, that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, here's another one. This is from Nige. Is it Nige or Nige? I don't know. It could be Nige or Nige. N-I-G-E. Sounds like Nige. Yeah, N-I-J. Nige. Oh. Um at the start of lockdown, I built a shed. I love the shed on an unhealthy level. I know I've spent quite a lot of money on it, and my wife is pulling together accounts. Should I just <laughs> hope she doesn't care or misses it? I want to install aircon. I mean, like, let's, let's don't let one heat wave sort of got you too much. I think the first thing we should say: should I just do it now? And I, I guess that means install the aircon and have the argument later. I mean, what's <laughs> happening? You seem like a man that might have a shed or a den. Um, that's why I picked um, this layer out. Well, I'm actually an extremely frugal man. So my first point of call, rather than installing aircon, would be opening a window or the door and uh, <laughs> just letting the heat wave pass and <laughs> save a few quid on aircon. That would be Yorkshire air conditioning, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Open fucking window. But <laughs> <laughs> she... I mean, like, what kind of argument on a domestic level here? Because this, I think he makes a good point here, and this is something my wife's pointed out to me, is I'll often keep eyes on every day spending and go, oh, Jesus Christ, I get really wound up. But on the occasion that I want to spunk, like, a few hundred quid on gadgetry or something, I somehow find a different argument for that. Right, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I do need a new laptop again this year. <laughs> <laughs> you could justify that, though, because you're a writer. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a writer, but I, I don't really know what the new laptop does. And in fact, I upgraded too high to one recently. I had to de- <laughs> This is like the HVR. <laughs> I actually had to go back a stage because I just didn't understand the interface and the keyboard. <laughs> I had to go. I had to trade it in for an older laptop. Has there ever been a sadder thing? <laughs> um, I install the aircon. I mean, I, I mean, mostly at this point, I want to see the shed. I've got an image in my mind of something that is very classical shed on the outside, uh-huh. properly creosoted wood, but very modern. Maybe he's gone plasterboard panelling to give it a real minimalist feel inside. That'd be a fucking great shed, wouldn't it? That sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> Although you could also just spend like 15 quid on a fan from Argos. Um, just a final question here. We often have a hypothetical fight. I haven't done one of these for a while. But um, James O'Brien... It seems to be enjoying, in particular, GB News's struggles. And he, he, he basically just did a tweet which was pretty ungraciously dancing on Andrew O'Neill's, what he perceived to be a grave. I think when you're that good at being a journalist, I think you'll probably be all right in the long run. Yeah. But 
Who would win in a hypothetical fight between Andrew Neil and James O'Brien? Age adjusted. I think that's important to say here. So um, both both in their prime. I'm I'm going Andrew Andrew O'Neill. Yeah. Andrew Neil. Andrew Neil. Andrew Neil. Andrew O'Neill. I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a comic. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he'd fight James O'Brien. Uh, I think he'd probably um, go for a pint. But um, Andrew Neil's got a bit of a sort of Scottish grit to him, I think. Yeah, I mean, like one thing about a guy like James O'Brien, I often think those kind of centre lefty guys are really like the angriest people in politics. They are mm-hmm. because they just think that the, the simple answers, trust the science, you know, just rejoin, re- remain. You know, they they yeah. tend to simplify a lot of arguments, and it makes them really wild with anger. So. I think I, I think what might happen, he, he unloads like a bunch of haymakers very early, gets on top early, but Neil Neil Wiley, like like in his interviews, perhaps just works the body. People forget about the body, just grinds, <laughs> just grinds him down. Makes him really want it to be over, and then there's still more. Yeah, I mean, I, these journalist beefs, I, I do find them a bit unedifying. And, and they go on for fucking days as well. They just yeah. constantly quote tweeting each other, which is the equivalent of sort of arguing loudly at a party, trying to bring other people into it. I think uh, a charity fight between Andrew Neil and James O'Brien would be a good thing. But we we think Andrew Neil were inside eight. I think so. I think even earlier. He's a mauler. <laughs> he's, he's, you always think like you always just presume anyone with a Scottish accent is gonna gonna possess a decent uppercut. <laughs> you um, put the stick the head on him. <laughs> yeah, I think I think James O'Brien physically has got a bigger head as well, so it's a good target. Yeah, we're we're both saying Andrew Andrew Neil maybe inside five or six rounds. Look, Adam, thanks so much for having you on the show. I, there are occasions I, I I have contrary voices on, but it's been really nice to have somebody on that I just agree with a lot. Let's just clear that up. If everywhere, if any lefties have been listening, going, well, they're just agreeing with each other. Yeah, like almost every podcast you normally listen to. All right. So we're allowed, <laughs> we're allowed to agree sometimes. Um, obviously, I'll direct people to the Radio 4 special, Centrist Dad. Um, yeah. Is there any other stuff? Are you, are you out with live stuff touring? Any other stuff that we should... Uh, I'll be gigging again. Uh, I'm just shaking off this COVID. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I'll be gigging again as from now, basically, in clubs and hopefully a tour next year. But we'll see how it goes. I'm not sure if the uh, vaccine passports mean that I'll be uh, touring if, if if we're entering a two-tier society. I'm not sure I'm up for it. Well, that that would be the real acid test for comedians that are pro-vaccine passports, but then suddenly remember they've got a fucking tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what? I think it's a really great point to, to in terms of your character, that we are at the end of the interview here, and I should have said at the beginning that you've literally just had COVID. But this is what... <laughs> a, 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 a sort of sturdy Yorkshireman you are. I didn't, <laughs> didn't fucking mention it. That's all right. It's, it's just like just it's just like flu. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's been a bit worse than that, but anyway. <laughs> well, listen, man. I hope good to see that you feel like you're over the worst of it now. Yeah, yeah. Good to hear. Well, listen, Alan Cochran. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, that is the show for this week. What a brilliant chat with Alan Cochran. So do check out his show, Centrist Dad on BBC Radio 4. And, you know, he's not on much social media, but follow what is there. And if he's doing tour shows, I mean, we're talking, we're talking a proper comic here, okay? Alan, Alan doesn't fuck about. He's from generation, similar sort of generation to me. 
that we know when to pull out the knob gags uh, if absolutely necessary. Okay, we um, so we always read out the five star reviews uh, on iTunes, and I know people leave them elsewhere, but these are the only ones I can access. I and I read out any five star reviews, and this week there are none. So that's that's well, all that energy's come crashing down, isn't it? Uh, I mean, look, I mean, it's it's fine. And got any any regular listeners who go, oh shit, I better stop a podcast here because normally when there are no five star new reviews on iTunes, it it ends really low energy. <laughs> it's not, guys, it's not going to end low energy. I know people are busy now; they're back at work, and you know, especially those people that are listening for free. And, you know, not buying tickets or buying the book or doing the Patreon. I know that they, you know, they just haven't found time yet to press a fucking button. Oh, <laughs>